New Church. The series of sermons that we are looking at have to do with counseling. That is the specific application. But I want to make it very clear that everything we talk about is about all ministry because it applies to all ministry and it applies to you as an individual person. So if there's a principle that applies for counseling, it also applies in your own personal life. In fact is... 2 Timothy is written to a pastor. So it doesn't mean these things only apply to a pastor. In fact is, in verse 24, it says the Lord's bondservant. It doesn't say the pastor of the church or any of those kinds of things. It simply says the one that is a bondservant. So there are a whole bunch of principles that we're going to look at as we look at this. But... All of us have opportunities to have input into other people's lives. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God expects that you will be having an impact and an influence on other people. My hope and my desire from this series of sermons is that you will be better equipped to interact with them and to convey biblical truth and help them to make good decisions. The bottom line in all of this, if you remember, the end result of Christian counseling is always a person who is more mature in their relationship with Jesus Christ, not simply fixing a problem, but the person is actually more mature, a stronger Christian as a result. This passage is set up starting at verse 21 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says there, therefore, if anyone cleanses, cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. But Refuse foolish and arrogant speculations, knowing that they will produce quarrels. Notice what he says to this young pastor. He said, you need to be a person who's clean. In other words, you cannot try to minister and help someone else become more mature as a Christian if you are not doing the same thing. If you're living in sin, you're not going to be able to do that. He says, sanctified, set apart for the work of God, and then you're prepared to do the work that God has for you. And to kind of reiterate that, he simply says, flee from youthful lust. That simply means those things that have plagued you ever since you were a child. It doesn't mean only youth have lust. It's simply that... These things have been true ever since you've been a young person. And then he said, pursue these kinds of things. Right standard. Faith. Faithfulness. Love. That is looking out for other people. Peace. That is harmony. And do it from a pure heart 
with those who call upon the name of the Lord. You are never in ministry by yourself. If you think you're the Lone Ranger, you've got it wrong. It is always people working together. You may be the chief spokesman or something like that, but it's always people working together. Even if the only thing they are doing is praying for you in your ministry, you're always working with other people. And then he said, refuse those things that are speculations. Refuse those things that are uh, foolish. Get rid of them because they produce quarrels. Someone who's quarreling is looking for a fight, looking for an argument, looking for a reason to fight against someone. He said, that is never part of ministry. If it is, it's not really ministry. And so with that as the background, let's look at the last three verses of this chapter. It says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. The word that he uses here is a word that is used two ways in the Bible. It is not simply a servant or someone who serves other people, um, as you might serve somebody at a table or serve your boss or something like that. That is not the word. This is the word that is translated two different ways, bondservant or bondslave or slave. Normally, you think of this word as a slave. A slave is someone who is under the authority involuntarily. In other words, they didn't put themselves there. Somebody is controlling that person uh, from the outside, and they didn't decide they wanted to do it on their own. On the other hand, the way it's used here is where you have voluntarily placed yourself under someone else to help them. Nobody forced you to do it. You made the choice to do it to serve someone else. So you become a voluntary slave. Think about it this way for ministry. I'll talk about counseling. I don't want to keep repeating this, but this applies to all ministry. Whether you're a teacher, you're a pastor, you're a counselor, or you're someone that's talking to the person working next to you at work. If you're going to help someone, this word says, I put myself under that other person so I can lift them up. That's, or, or to help them. That's this concept. So it's not a position. It's not a gift. It's none of those things. It's me voluntarily placing myself at the disposal and for the use of that other person. Ministry requires me to go out of my comfort zone. Requires me to get my hands dirty. It requires me to be involved in things that I'd rather not be involved in. Why? Because I am voluntarily there to serve that other person. I become their slave so that there's a good end to the whole thing. That's how it says. And it says right off the bat, this person must not be quarrelsome. This person is not contentious. They're not looking for a fight. They're not looking for an argument. If you are trying to teach someone or you're trying to counsel someone, you are never there because you want to argue with them. It may seem that way at times. I'm not going to tell you it doesn't. But you are a neutral third party. Once before in this series of sermons, I had mentioned that if you are trying to help people, you don't take sides. If you take sides, you become a part of the drama and you're going to go down 
regardless. I've been doing enough counseling in the past 31 years to know that very seldom do you ever look at anything and say, this person is right and that person's wrong. Even if one started the problem, whoever else is involved probably has aggravated it additionally. And you have to deal with both sides. But when you minister, you only represent one point of view. That's God's point of view. You cut right through the middle of it. Sometimes you could agree that person was right when they did that and they were wrong when they did that and you could do the same over here. Sometimes it's only the person's mind because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways and a person can be thinking this and then the next time they're doing this and you have to just cut through it and just say, no, here's God's point of view. That's what I want. You're not looking for a fight. You want to be a promoter of unity. And uh, it's not just simply an argument. And one of the reasons that Paul gives this to Timothy is because the master, Jesus Christ himself, was one who absolutely practiced that. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 19, quoting from Isaiah the prophet, it says, He will not quarrel, referring to Jesus Christ. That is not why he came. Did he have heated exchanges? Did he butt heads with people? The answer is absolutely yes. But he was not the one looking for the fight. He was not the one trying to cause contention. Contention is caused by all kinds of things, including rumors and gossip and innuendo and and just wrong thinking and all those kinds of things. But that should never be us. That is not what we are to do as someone who is uh, serving the Lord and ministering to other people. And then it goes on to say, and I'm sorry I forgot to flip this, and must be kind to all. Interesting, this word is only used two times in the New Testament, here and one other passage. Here it just simply says, but be kind to all. Kind of straightforward. But if you want to catch a glimpse of what this word really looks like, you got to go to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 7. Here's what it says. You're going to find this pretty interesting. The Apostle Paul is writing and he's saying, we, referring to himself and those who were working with him, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. I have to tell you, I've been around long enough to see numerous mothers nursing their child. I have yet to see one of them yelling at their kid, cursing at their kid, you know, shaking their kid while they're nursing. I I don't think that would work. Paul said, and this is the Apostle Paul saying this. Now, he was not a slouch. He didn't back down when somebody disagreed. He stood for the truth. But he said, I and those with me proved to be like a mother taking care of their small child. That's this word. We need to understand when we're in ministry, we look out for the welfare and the good of the other person. We're never in it for ourselves. We're never in it to shake somebody into submission. That's never it at all. It's just the opposite. Not the same word, but the same concept is used in 
Romans chapter 2, verse 4. There, it's referring to our salvation. It says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his, that is God's kindness, and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance. I know me, okay? And you are all going to understand this. If somebody gets in my face, my first reaction is not, oh, I guess they're right, I think I'm going to do what they want. Yeah, some of you are laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. My first reaction is I am bracing myself and I'm putting up an armor and I'm putting up a shield and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back at you, right? Anybody disagree with me? Maybe there is somebody that doesn't do that, but most of us do that. Think about your spouse or your children and then you'll understand where that comes from. Because we usually defend ourselves. He says, no, don't do that. That is not what to do. And there's two little words that come after and be kind to all. When it says all, here's what it comes down. This includes everyone and excludes no one. It is easy to teach, counsel, or minister to somebody that's really nice to you. Actually even agrees with you. Gets along with you. But if you're going to minister you are going to be ministering and need to minister to people who you don't even really like. They just rub you the wrong way. They irritate you. They've done you wrong someplace in the past and you haven't forgotten that. And oh, I'd just like to give them a piece of my mind. You know, it says, no, 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 no. If you're going to be the Lord's bondservant, you cannot be quarrelsome. In fact is, you need to be kind to them. Wow. When I said ministry is messy, I won't repeat it anymore. Ministry is messy. Because you are going to be in situations where you go, I'd rather not be here. I'd rather not even have to deal with this person. But if you're in ministry, that's what you're going to do. A little while ago, I was... Um, counseling with a husband and wife and they're, they're obviously if you're counseling with a husband and wife usually it's not a good thing and so in this case that was it and uh, I had uh, counseled the, the, the wife in a particular direction a very practical outworking of everything that I had counseled them in the past and the husband hadn't talked to me for quite a while and uh, they decided to respond for the first time one thing it was an email that just said, did you tell my wife this? <laughs> yeah, uh, that was not a friendly email. It was like, I can't believe you told my wife this. And I wrote back, I wrote a whole couple of paragraphs. I'm like, this is exactly why I did this. I'm not against you. I'm not sticking up for your wife. I'm not, none of those things. I am trying to promote something that's peaceable. I already know the two of you are butting heads. And if I would have given any other advice to the question I was asked, the outcome would have potentially been horrible because it would have caused the two of you to butt heads even more and be it, have con even more conflict. And so I spent a lot of time writing that email back. Uh, but 
that's what we need to be. We're not looking for a fight, but we're trying to do what is best for everyone that's involved. And if you want to know what it is, the word picture is in the Bible, like a mother nursing their child. Wow. You go, oh, does that mean you just get pushed around if you're in ministry? The answer is you haven't read the rest of this yet, because, but that's my attitude. I'm not looking for a fight. Just the opposite of that. And no matter if I agree or disagree with the person, if I like or don't like the person, I still have to have that same attitude. Then it goes on to give one more. It says, able to teach. Now, able to teach can mean exactly what that says. It means that you are willing to instruct someone with good information. That is true. But usually when this phrase is used in the New Testament, it's a character of life, a quality of your life, which literally comes out teachable. Both sides are true. See, you cannot teach someone else if you aren't willing to learn yourself. I will always, and I've done this uh, for 31 years now, and I'm not going to change this, I'm going to encourage people to be in the Word of God at all times. Why? Because you need to be teachable. You need to be learning yourself. I'm going to encourage you to not only know so you can, you know, win a Bible trivia contest, but I'm going to encourage you to put it into practice so that you will be living it out, and I'm going to encourage you to be an example of what you see in the Bible. That makes you a teachable kind of person. And then from that platform, you now are able to teach. Otherwise, you're pretty hypocritical because you're saying you ought to do this, but your life is something different than that. He says, no, you need to be able to teach. And you have to have that quality of life that makes it possible for you to help someone else. The principle that I discussed, I think, a week or two ago, it was two weeks ago, is that you have to first listen. Whether it's listening to what God says in the Word or listening to the other person, if you're going to help them, you need to have both ears open before you open the mouth. Otherwise, you're going to stick your foot in it instead of giving good advice and good counsel or good teaching. So, if you're going to teach, if you're going to instruct others, you have to be teachable yourself. And then the next one. I am, I am the perfect example of the next one. Doing it wrong. Oh, that was supposed to be funny, but obviously it wasn't. Patient when wrong. I got to tell you, I think I'm patient until something happens, and then I'm about as impatient as anybody you've met. Anybody? Can I get an amen there? Yeah, lots of people are that way. We think we're doing pretty good until something happens. But notice, it's not just simply patient. And that's not quite nearly as hard. But patient when wronged. I've had people literally on the phone and in person ream me out for three quarters of an hour telling me what a lousy pastor I am, what a lousy counselor I am, because I don't know what I'm talking about. If that person walked in here today, and it, it has happened, I've, I've been able to talk to that person since, I walk right up to them and act like it didn't happen. 
Now, I didn't tell them anything that wasn't true. I didn't tell them anything stupid. I just told them straightforward, this is what the Bible says. For example, well, I, I don't have time to go into example there. But you know what? When somebody wrongs you, you still need to have patience. And patience is that ability to put up with that which is evil, that which is worthless, that which is injurious to you, put up with those that oppose you, those that have a different opinion. And I don't mean, hey, I think that's not so good. I mean, no, you're wrong kind of thing. Or they've actually done you wrong. We need to have the willingness, if you're going to be the Lord's bondservant, that even if people say things wrong or do things against you, you still need to be willing to be there and be the bondservant that God called you to be. With other people, with consideration. It's not just simply I'm complacent and I'm backing out and I'm going to throw my hands up and say I can't help you. It's not that at all. I'm going to be there. And patient when wrong, and it goes on with gentleness, it's a different word here, correcting those who are in opposition. Counseling, ministry, never is okay. Just simply, well, here are the facts. But in counseling in particular, you almost always have a problem. I like to tell people, in counseling, you start behind the eight ball. You, you have a, looks like a hopeless, helpless, no good situation, and now they bring it to you. They never come to you ahead of time. Somebody that's in trouble, and I, you don't have to be a pastor for this. Your friends come to you, is, I did this, this, and this, and now my life's a mess here. And you go... Man, if you would have talked to me before, I would have helped you eliminate never getting in that circumstance. But you usually don't get that opportunity. So now you're in a really bad situation. And you look and you search your mind and you search your Bible and you go, there's no exact thing exactly like that in the Bible. Then you look to principle. And in that principle, you are correcting that person who's in opposition. The opposition here is not necessarily to you. But it could be if you simply are representing the viewpoint of God, then it would be in opposition to what you're telling them. But this person is opposition to whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is the proper thing to do. A number of years ago, um, in my office was still back over at my house. I had a husband and wife that I was counseling with. The wife never would come and see me. She would never talk to me. Uh, she talked to me, but she wouldn't come for counseling. And the husband would. Well, one day, and it was bad. It was, it was bad. The, the husband was doing things that were just totally bizarre, and it was bad. So finally, one day, the wife called me and said, hey, I'd like to come and talk to you. I said, ah, and I thought, a breakthrough. She's actually going to be willing to come and talk to me, and maybe we can straighten some things out. Well, was I wrong about that one? Because they both showed up in my office, and they sat in front of me, and the wife spoke first, and she says, there's only one reason I'm here. The only reason I'm here, I am here is my husband says that if I don't do this, and I believe the thing was if he doesn't move back in the house or something like that. I can't remember what it was, or move out of the house. I, I don't remember the exact, but if I don't do what he says, he's going to kill himself. He's going to harm himself. 
That's the only reason I'm here. I want you to talk to him. That's not a good way to start a counseling session. So I looked at both of them, and I had already been counseling with the husband, and uh, I had witnessed, that's right, I had witnessed to the wife once before. She was not a believer, the husband was. And I looked at him, and I said, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, whatever you do is what you choose to do. It's nobody else's fault. It's a bad situation. But if you go and you do yourself harm, that's your choice. Not recommending it. Then I looked at the wife and I said, I don't do divorce counseling. I would like to see this marriage get back together. I would like to see it the way it is. But I'm going to tell you right now, if he goes and harms himself because you do not bow to his manipulation of your life, and that's what he was doing, he was manipulating her, uh, I just said, you know what? You, if he goes out and kills himself, you're not responsible because he made that choice. He got so mad at me. This happened all within about 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes at the most. He got so mad, he got up, turned around, and walked out the door without saying a word. Now, you understand, I believed what I just had said was totally right. I, he was in opposition. He, he was just saying, I'm going you know, to manipulate, I'm going to force somebody to do what I want to do. And I'm like, no, you can't do that, and I'm not going to stand here and agree with you. He left. I talked to the wife for about another 10, 15 minutes maybe. I had a word of prayer with her, and as soon as she walked out the door, I'm not exaggerating, I put my head down on my desk and I said, Lord, if that is the worst counsel I have ever done, you need to show me right now because I'm getting out of here, I'm going to get in my car, I'm going to go find him because I've made some really bad choices and maybe I'm the one that would be responsible. Lord didn't tell me otherwise because, you know what, I know what the scripture says, we're responsible for our own actions. Many years later, he moved away. In the meantime, he moved away. And uh, many years later, I got a phone call from his wife said, hey, could you do my ex-husband's funeral? Right here. She was sitting right down here in the front row. And as I came up, she said, Paul, I want to talk to you. She said, you know, I don't know what you're going to say up there, but you know my husband was a really, I, I don't know the exact verbiage, but a pain in the neck. Most, absolutely, I know exactly what he was like. I've dealt with him. I said, so I don't want you to sit up there and, and paint some flowery picture. I wasn't planning to do that anyway. I just said, this is, the, this is who he was, and this is how he operated. And um, then I had the opportunity. I said, okay, after that day in my office, because I had not talked to her since that time, I said, did he ever threaten you be again to harm himself if you didn't go his direction? She said, no. Point is... You need to correct those in opposition. He had absolutely wrong thinking. He thought that he could get his way by manipulating, monopolizing someone else. It's just not going to happen. I'm glad that not all counseling sessions are like that one. That one, they're those I don't like. But they do happen. But we need to tell people the truth. Correct what is wrong. Almost always you're going to find that. Even your friends that come to you. 
The last part of this passage is not the easiest one. There are two things here that if you have any um, insight whatsoever, you're going to understand that there's a couple of things that are really difficult to understand here. I spent a lot of time on them, and I'm not going to try to bore you with details, but I will give you what I believe at this moment is the correct interpretation. It goes on to say, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. A couple of things. The word leading isn't there. So it simply says, grant them repentance to the knowledge of the truth. The end result of this whole thing is we want people to change their minds, to change their thinking, to do things in their mind different. And when you change it in your mind, it changes your activities. You ever notice that? If your mindset is one way, you will act that way. As a man thinketh in his mind, so is he, from the book of Proverbs. It is really true. But notice, we've already talked about the counselor. We will talk about the counselee. But here's the main person. God is the one that needs to do the work. In the past, I've had people come into my office, and one of the questions I'll ask, because it seems like they've been having this problem for a long time, I'll say, have, have you ever been to counseling before? I don't know what they're going to tell me. Sometimes they'll say, you know, I was going to another church someplace, and I got counseling there. But a lot of times they'll say, yeah, I went to a counselor. I'm like, oh, okay, so what kind of counselor? I want to know, I want to kind of figure out what they've been told in the past. Oh, I, I went to a Christian counselor. I said, oh, that sounds good. Uh, that means, because I don't know, they don't know what I'm going to do, and I don't know what they're thinking. I was like, well, they, so they showed you Bible verses and Bible principles that you could apply. Oh, no, they never quoted the Bible. They never opened the Bible. I'm like, okay, and that's Christian counseling? Well, they prayed with you. I'm, I'm, actually, this is almost exact words I would use. Well, at least they prayed with you. No, we never prayed in a counseling session. I'm going, hold it a second. You said it was Christian counseling? I have a problem with that. First of all, counseling, if it's Christian or biblical counseling, is never simply you and the person you're counseling or persons you're counseling. It's never just that. It always has to do with God doing the work. I never have changed one single person's mind. I've given them information, a challenge, and an encouragement. I've actually even, uh, I don't know, I guess adamant would be a good word. Like, listen to what I'm saying, you know, that kind of thing. But you know what? God is ultimately, God the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who does the work. He is the one that takes the truths of the Word of God and makes them real in a person's life. It's called, you call it conviction, you call it whatever you want to call it. But the Holy Spirit is the one that teaches and guides and, and convicts. He does all of those things. So you're never ministering alone. If you are, it's not Christian ministry. The way this is written, it's written two different ways in two different Greek manuscripts, and I'm done with that. But both of them come down to this. There is no guarantee outcome. Because in both cases, it's based on repentance. That they would change their mind. 
God does the work. He is convicting. He is leading, teaching, guiding, all of those things. But the person has to make a choice. In Greek, it's subjunctive. It means it's not a given. It's a possibility, but it's not a given. A number of years ago, I was counseling with someone, and they decided to change their viewpoint about halfway through and decided I didn't know what I was talking anymore. And as one of those things, and it cut pretty deep. I'm still friends with the person, uh, but it cut pretty deep. It's like, okay, Paul, what's your success rate in marriage counseling is what it was actually about. Nobody ever asked me that before. Because you know what? That's not the way I look at it. I look at it as, did I represent God's point of view, challenge and encourage them and give them the right information to make the right choices? And I said to them, and in the spur of the moment, and I stick by what I said back then, is like, you know what? I really don't know what my success rate is. But here's what I can tell you, that if I'm successful in counseling a husband and wife, and that was the context, you will never know that there was a problem because they're going to go on and live for the Lord and live for each other and, and everything's going to be fine. You won't even know there was a problem. If they don't put into practice what the Word of God says, what the Holy Spirit convicts them of and what I teach them from the Word of God, it's probably going to be a public disaster area. And those are the ones everyone sees. I still stick by that, that answer because God is the one that does it, and He is the one working so that they would have a change of mind, which is what repentance means. And now notice, come to the knowledge of the truth. That simply doesn't mean they know some facts in the head. It is the word in Greek that means, I know this by experience, which means they put it into practice. If they don't put it into practice, there is no hope. Just having a bunch of extra verses in your, in your head does not solve a problem. Whether it's in your own head, whether it's from, with someone else, it's never that. It's putting it into practice. God is the one working. There's a lot of things you could do in there, but here's why I believe what I said is true. That they may come to their senses from out of the snare of the devil. If you've noticed, and I wasn't trying to freak anybody out by putting mouse traps and traps in there, but uh, you'll notice why. Because it says that these people that you may be dealing with have been caught in a trap. Satan is the great deceiver. He does everything he can do to steal and to kill and destroy. He tries to nullify everything God wants to do. And people get caught in a trap. And they keep going around the circle. One of the things, and you may have heard this before, is the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result or a different outcome. That's insane. Because most people, by the time they will talk to you and say, I have a problem, have already been doing that for quite a while. It could be years. could be most of their life. I've had people that have been going around in the same circle since they were a child. For example, uh, uh, women who were abused as a child. And they're 40, 50 years old by the time they talk to me or someone else. They've been going around that same circle all those years. 
That's a, and hoping that something different is going to come out. It won't. Only by coming to their senses. Remember, it said repentance. That's a change of mind. Here it says come to their senses. The only place in the whole Bible that this word is used, but the brood of it is somebody that's drunk because they drank alcohol. They're drunk. It says somebody that has sober thinking, rational, logical, straightforward, biblical thinking. That's where I go. End result will be a mature, growing Christian. But in the meantime, they've got to start thinking differently. Go back to what they know to be true from the Word of God. They may come to their senses thinking soberly, biblically. That's what they need to do because they've been caught in the snare of the devil. Some of those snares are short-term and some are long-term. It really doesn't matter. In all cases, Satan is the one that gets us into that situation where we keep thinking, I can get out of it. We did trapping when I was a kid. And if you caught a muskrat, they, and, and it's on the trap in the chain, they just keep going around in a circle, you know, until you got there. The point is, that's what people do. And they need to stop and they need to make a choice that's very different than what they had been doing. The whole tenor of this passage is that Satan is not going to come along and release the trap. It's not going to happen. And it doesn't even say that God's going to come along and release the trap. That's not what he does. That's not how he operates. Not according to this. Simply says that you can come to your senses and come out. From the snare of the devil. Now an animal cannot do this. An animal can't say, huh, I got my leg in the trap. Or I'm in a box trap and, hey, by the way, this is how this opens. Or, hey, that spring, I can push that spring down and get my leg out. Animals can't do that. But God's not talking to animals. He's talking to people who can repent, they can change their thinking, they can have new information, better information, they can be convicted and know the right thing to do. The only person who can take your foot out of that snare that Satan has laid for you and you got trapped by is you. And you have to decide, I'm going to do things God's way. And you can take that trap right off your foot. I cannot do that for you. You cannot help your friends in that direction. You can't do that. They have to come to their senses and come out from the snare of the devil. They need to do it. What does it say after that? Having been held captive by him. Here's what it comes down to. If you're thinking wrong and you think Satan's got you by the leg or the head, or whatever it is, you've given him permission to do that, because wrong thinking. I'll spend a whole sermon on how Christian or biblical counseling starts with the mind. It doesn't X out the spirit, uh, spiritual or the emotional or, or the practical things. It doesn't do any of those, but it always starts with the mind. And when you go, oh, problem. I need to get out of this. I will take 
the action necessary to release the trap. Notice, Satan is the one who will hold you captive. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't want anything good for you. I know that. He's a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. But there's another passage that's quite interesting also in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, the God of this world, Satan himself, has blinded those who believe not. He's blinded their eyes of those who believe not. That's his favorite thing. He tells you a lie. You can't see the truth. He just wants to destroy you. If you're a believer, he wants to nullify you so you can't help anyone else. You can't minister to anyone else. And if you're an unbeliever, and in counseling, I do a lot of evangelism in counseling. I just did it last week. Because some people are simply blind to the truth. They don't even know the truth of Jesus Christ. They don't know the freedom that Jesus Christ gives. He said to the believing Jews, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's Jesus' own words. He wants us to be free. Not in the Satan's trap. Not held going around in circles, that insanity I'm talking about. But he wants us to be free. Now the last phrase in this is, you're going to read your Bible and it'll probably say, to do his with a small h. And what they do is they say, well, is you were held captive by Satan to do his will. I do not believe that's a correct or not the best translation. You can, you can translate it at least two different ways. One is that it's referring to the devil and that he was holding you captive to do his will. That, does, that flies in the face of what I know of other theology because Satan can't make us do anything. If you guys remember Flip Wilson, only those that are old or see some oldies channel on the TV, the devil made me do it. Remember, how many remember that? I didn't even have TV and I remember that. Uh, but yeah, the devil, made, the devil can't make you do anything, but he will catch you in a trap. So that's a problem. On the other hand, when I read the whole thing and I see the context of this, it is, I believe, better translated to do his, that is God's will. So you've been held captive by Satan in his snare, but by coming to your senses, you've released yourself, and now you can do God's will. That's why I put the dove there. It's the freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You know all those verses, or you've heard them before. Christ wants us to be free. Not free to do whatever, not free to sin. Well, you can do that. But free to do His will. To do what is good for you and for others. The freedom just to be able to live life without feeling like you've got a load on top of you. The end result is we want to be able to do God's will. I'll end with this, and uh, there are certain passages where it's impossible to know exactly how to translate them, just simply because there are three possibilities. I believe the last one makes the most sense. 
It's interesting. I looked at lots of versions of Scripture, and only a few of them translate the way I'm going to tell you. One of them is, and I'm not a big fan of the Living Bible, but Ken Taylor, when he uh, paraphrased the, the Bible for his children, and that's the end result is the Living Bible, he actually translated it this way. I found that to be interesting, because I have some issues with the rest of his translation at points. But it could be, both of these can refer to the devil, and many, if you look at your scripture, it probably indicates something in that direction. It could be both of them refer to God, that one doesn't really make any sense, but I believe the last one is that the first hymn is of the devil, the second one is referring to God. So, Somebody put this translation, it's not from any version of scripture, but they put it this way, and I believe this captures the context and the sense of what it's saying. And I will tell you, this is how I operate. This is my mindset when I look at this passage. If I haven't told you, and I don't think I did, this is the main passage that I base my ministry on. That's just the way I look at it. And that they may return to sensible thinking out of the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do God's will. The end result is we want people doing God's will. We want them to be mature, faithful, growing, loyal, loving Christians. That's what we want as an end result. Anything short of that, you can get from secular counseling. You can get from practical advice. I'm not against practical, and I'm not against a lot of secular counseling does a lot of good things, but they come very short of presenting that person mature, complete in Christ. If you're ministering and you're simply giving information, it's not quite enough. If you're counseling people and you're just helping them fix a practical problem, not quite enough. The end result is always someone who's stronger as a Christian. Maybe in some cases the person, because people have asked me in the past is, well, if you're doing Christian or biblical counseling, well then how do you counsel with somebody that's unsaved? I tell them the exact same thing I would tell anybody else, and then I say, oh, and by the way, you can't do this. <laughs> because you don't have the power to do this. Remember, it's God the one that does the ultimate work, not me. If you think you're doing the ultimate work, you will burn out and you will quit because it's just too overwhelming. But we realize that God the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one that does the work. Any kind of ministry, doesn't have to just be counseling, any kind of ministry. It's always God, the Holy Spirit, that takes the truth of the Word of God and makes it real to people. And that person has to make decisions. They have to change their mind, that's repentance, and make decisions. Your job is to give them the information, give them encouragement, challenge them, and sometimes give them very practical things to do so that the end result is their problem is fixed. They've dealt with it, whatever it is. Sometimes it's just in their head. Sometimes it's with another person. Sometimes it's just overall mess in life. But the end result is they change their thinking. They fixed the problem or begun to fix the problem. It's probably a better way to say it. And that they are now more mature, more solid, a stronger Christian. 
I hope that's a challenge to you because that is what we should all be doing. This isn't just the pastors or a professional counselor. This is the all Christians. We should be reaching out and helping people wherever they are. You meet them where they are. You listen to them. You give them the information. You pray and ask God to help and help you also so that the end result is that they will make decisions based on good information so that they would be strong, growing, mature Christians. Let's all stand together as we close. Father, thank you so much that you have made every Christian life worthwhile. All life is worthwhile, Lord. But as Christians, you have given us a responsibility. You've given us a privilege of being able to minister in the lives of other people. Lord, I pray that we indeed would want to be bond servants, that we would voluntarily place ourselves under others so that we could be a part of the, the work that you're doing to lift them up from where they are, to help them to make the right decisions, to get out of the traps of life and make decisions, repent, so that they would be living a life that's free, a life that's mature, a life that's faithful, and a life that reflects what Jesus Christ has done for them. Lord, thank you so much for reminding us of that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Go with God. Mm -hmm.